Hi, this is JP Mac, and welcome to Liberty Relearn, not just another conservative blog. Okay, welcome to the show. This week we'll begin with another installment of JP Mac's dystopic journal. You can't talk about dystopias without covering the one envisioned by Anne Rand all the way back in 1957 in her book Atlas Shrugged. The world of today echoes the world she created over 65 years ago. So, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read either the book, uh, Atlas Shrugged, it's over a thousand pages long, or watched the movies. Uh, Atlas Shrugged is a series of movies, it's a, a trilogy of movies based upon the books. It's uh, a passable representation, I think, of the movies. So, I mean, if you don't have the time or the inclination to read a book that's over a thousand pages long, then, you know, watching the DVDs um, pretty much just as good. To, uh, um, you know, some of the things are condensed and, you know, some of the things are cut out for time, uh, like... Uh, John Galt's speech at the, towards the end of the story that we're going to go into today. A lot of that has been cut from the movie. Um, you know, Anne Rand insisted on keeping that that uh, part, that monologue uh, done by her character, John Galt. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in the movie. Um, well, in the book... Um, she insisted that the book be printed as is, including uh, John Galt's speech, which runs about f 50 pages or so, um, I think like 52 pages, of basically straight monologue um, by the character, one of the main characters, John Galt, at least in the third part of the book. He doesn't really show up too much in the either of the... Um, first parts of the book or in the first two movies but he does have a long uh, expository soliloquy uh, towards the end of the story and so that's what I want to go over today in Atlas Shrugged Anne Rand wrote possibly her most iconic passage of fiction it is in it, a mysterious figure comes out of the shadows after withdrawing from public life some 12 years earlier. During those 12 years of self-imposed exile, he formed his own community of talented, like-minded people. He enticed to go on strike with, from an ungrateful society, consumed with taking their achievements for their own. As a result of the strike, depriving society of the inventors and entrepreneurs who made it run, the world has fallen into a state of disrepair and despair. Near the end of the story, Galt returns to explain his actions in this famous monologue known to us as This is John Galt Speaking. One of the chief themes of Galt's speech is the idea that society had begun to hold sacrifice as its highest virtue, but Galt points out that in society's twisted morality, society's concept of sacrifice was 
not that of noble self-sacrifice, it was responding to the demands of others that was held as a virtue. Virtue in this fallen system was to accede to the demands of others, even to the point of going against one's own best self-interest. This virtue of sacrifice stemmed from, or perhaps caused, a widespread sense of entitlement. People had started to believe that they were entitled to the efforts of others. And so, here's a, uh, a quote from the book um, uh, where this is John Galt speaking in this quote. You have heard it said that this is an age of moral crisis. You have said it yourself, half in fear, half in hope that the words had no meaning. You have cried that Man's sins are destroying the world, and you have cursed human nature for its unwillingness to practice the virtues you demanded. Since virtue to you consists of sacrifice, you have demanded more sacrifice at every successive disaster. In the name of a return to morality, you have sacrificed all those evils which you held up as the cause of your plight. You have sacrificed justice to mercy. You have sacrificed independence to unity. You have sacrificed reason to faith. You have sacrificed wealth to need. You have sacrificed self-esteem to self-denial. You have sacrificed happiness to duty. And those are the words of John Galt, a part of his speech. We live in a world where countries have been convinced to sacrifice large portions of their economy, particularly in the energy and agricultural sectors. Over the past few decades, Germany has invested in renewable fuels such as wind and solar. Now, with war in Eastern Europe, it's lost a large supply of gas and oil. It and other countries will struggle to make up the difference and renewables will not be enough. Sri Lanka was convinced to undertake self-destructive economic measures in the name of achieving a high environmental, social, and governance ESG score. It took out loans it could never repay and demanded its agricultural sector be cut to the point that its people were going hungry. Other countries have followed Sri Lanka down this path. The Netherlands is deliberately regulating nearly a third of its farms out of business. Canada is acting in a similar fashion. Countries are practicing self-immolation in the name of the greater good. And so this is part of the sacrifice that uh, Galt is talking about here. Um, we're hearing it... Um, being expressed in our real-world environment, where these countries are being uh, asked to sacrifice their agricultural sectors, their sources of dependable energy, uh, the comfort of their citizens, and sometimes even the lives and well-beings of their citizens, uh, in order to sacrifice for their, their uh, climate change agenda. You know, at the, they're sacrificing your livelihood and lives and the lives of farmers and coal miners at the altar of uh, climate change. 
and so so we can see that um Anne Rand was was correct here where she she saw that the uh the left the elite um as as they became later to be known you know we know them as left now she would call them as uh, probably collectivists or a socialist or something like that but we now refer to them collectively as the left the left has developed this culture where i expect you to sacrifice your good it doesn't matter if it's asking you to stay home for several weeks during a pandemic it's doesn't matter if it's requiring your kid to wear a mask against their own uh best interest against their own health interests and developmental interests uh it's asking you to sacrifice your kids in order to further their agenda to beef up what i believe is their power base their to, to establish their control over us so they've asked all of these sacrifices in recent years in particular now of course in the name of climate change they're continuing on they've gone from one crisis to another as will um as i talked about here um where it says where he says um since virtue to you consists of sacrifice you have demanded more sacrifices at every successful successive disaster and so that's what happened you know they asked us to sacrifice in the name of the environment then covid came along and then they asked us to sacrifice more uh in the name of fixing that disaster and now that that disaster is is largely over and done with now they're moving back into climate change um but even more so and so they're asking us to, to sacrifice even more and more and of course there's the war now in eastern europe with uh you know between ukraine and russia we're being asked to sacrifice uh, on behalf of ukraine which is being which is seen as being in the right in this case um and arguably so um i i have to say but still we're being asked to sacrifice in their name because obviously um we can talk about this is the global elites uh see something in what ukraine is doing and, and how russia was kind of upsetting the apple cart and so that kind of drew the ear and condemnation of you know the rest of the world and again these are for reasons both good but some maybe not so good because after all you know there there's corruption in both countries um has been for a while it's a, been a problem for a while but we've only been asked to condemn one of the countries and now europe is sacrificing in the name of ukraine and again you know we can argue whether it's worthwhile or not i think largely it is but i think uh we will come to find in the fullness of time that the global elites have other agendas and uh what russia was doing didn't fit into that agenda which was uh enriching them and empowering them uh in the rest of the world 
so you you have a situation there where there is yes there's a clear aggressor but also um there's uh, there's more forces than are what are obvious to the casual observer with regards to Russia and Ukraine but i didn't talk, i didn't uh have this um you know we can talk about the merits of supporting Ukraine um at a later time so but suffice to say that that's part of the sacrifice of the greater good that we're being asked to make and particularly Europeans they're being uh, asked to sacrifice their supply of heating oil as we will we will talk about a little bit later um, so So we live in a world where countries have been convinced to sacrifice large portions of their economy, particularly in the energy and agricultural sectors. Over the past few decades, Germany has invested in renewable fuels such as wind and solar. Now, with war in Eastern Europe, is lost a large supply of gas and oil. It and other countries will struggle to make up the difference, and renewables will not be enough. Sri Lanka was convinced to undertake self-destructive economic measures in the name of achieving a high environmental, social, and government's ESG score. It took out loans it could never repay and decimated its agricultural sector to the point that its people were going hungry. Other countries have followed Sri Lanka down this path. The Netherlands is deliberately regulating nearly a third of its farms out of business. Canada is acting in similar fashion. Countries are practicing self-immolation in the name of the greater good. And so continuing on with John Galt's speech, he says, Since life requires a specific course of action, any other course will destroy it. A being who does not hold his own life as the motive and goal of his actions is acting on the motive and standard of death. Such a being is a metaphysical monstrosity, struggling to oppose, negate, and contradict the fact of his own existence. Running blindly amok on a trail of destruction capable of nothing but pain. Happiness is the successful state of life. Pain is an agent of death. Happiness is that state of consciousness which proceeds from the achievement of one's values. A morality that dares to tell you to find happiness in the renunciation of your happiness to value the failure of your values is an insolent negation of morality. A doctrine that gives you, as an ideal, the role of a sacrificial animal seeking slaughter on the altar of others is giving you death as your standard. By the grace of reality and the nature of life, man, every man, is an end in himself. He exists for his own sake, and the achievement of his own happiness is the highest moral purpose. And so again, uh, he's talking about uh, people being asked to sacrifice their own uh, 
better self-interest on the the uh, altar of what we would call these uh, leftist causes such as uh, climate change alarmism and uh, things of that nature um, you know um, ESG and um, CRT and all of those uh, destructive ideologies that maybe you've heard me talk about before. Um, these all play into the notion that certain people are owed and it's a duty for other people to sacrifice their own lives and livelihood for others. And usually those others are the ones coincidentally uh, who are in charge or who are seeking power. And well, I'm going to talk about that right now. Um, the global elite would not agree with John Galt here. They say that a man's highest purpose is to serve his fellow man. They say that, but their policies, when put into practice, serve mainly them. These oligarchs and technocrats ask the Dutch farmer, the Canadian trucker, and the West Virginian coal miner to sacrifice their livelihoods for the good of their fellow man. They call the American that wants to be comfortable in their home during the summer as selfish, as they will call the European who wishes to be warm in their home during the winter selfish as well. Far from Galt's words, the words of globalists such as Klaus Schwab are, you will own nothing and be happy. And that are indeed those, those are indeed the words um, paraphrasing Klaus Schwab here and others of his ilk. And they expect us to sacrifice our live, livelihoods and our happiness for them. And they claim that they, we, will, they will, we will own nothing and be happy. Well, that means that they will own everything and be happier. And on top of that, uh, richer. And so what a lot of us fear with this uh, globalist agenda, such as we see in the um, World Economic Forum, or the World Monetary Fund um, and the UN are the idea of people being asked to subordinate themselves to um, some greater cause, some greater cause that they have established for themselves. But coincidentally, everything, every sacrifice you make benefits them financially and otherwise. And, uh, with regards to achieving their power that they seek. And so that's what we fear. We fear that, well, it's conservatives and libertarians, that one, that the larger the government, the smaller the individual. But also, we can also add to that, the larger the governmental or non-governmental or globalist concerns that place themselves above us, the smaller the, the individual. And so it also, we have to start thinking in those terms as well, not just government, but also in terms of the whole uh, globe, that they put themselves up here, they make themselves larger in importance 
to themselves and us the individuals smaller and they give us less and less power now if you're a student of history you may remember that we had a system such as this before it was done in the middle ages and up until um the dawn of the industrial revolution it was called serfdom and what the serf did is he basically owned nothing his master the baron or or whoever it was the king owned everything and the duty of the serf was to provide the king or the baron or those above him with riches and subsistence and meanwhile they really did not own anything they really had no possessions they did not own the means of production and therefore they not did not own the means to control and better their own lives and become equals and peers with the kings and queens and the barons etc now under our our system of free market capitalism imperfect though it is it gives us one a chance at least a chance of becoming the peers with those uh industrial giants that exist it, it gives us at least a chance of rising up to the ranks if we're good enough and we're smart enough we have a good enough an idea and maybe we have a little bit of luck on top of that um we can become the equals the peers through our effort and with the uh, cooperation of others um equal those uh those millionaires and billionaires that we see uh gives us a chance now obviously not everybody can do that not uh, you know but it gives you the chance when you're a serf you had no ability to improve your own lot you had your 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 piece of land that you were uh uh, expected to produce a certain amount of grain or other goods from every year and you were uh, expected to give over a certain amount of your production every year for that baron for that that uh, king or queen or whoever was in charge in the system of serfdom and, and now what we have is a kind of recreation kind of a neo-serfdom if you will and that is what is being established but now they won't have noble titles per se they'll have ceo and owner and um you know prime minister uh that sort of thing so they the titles will change but basically the roles will remain basically the same that we produce we're given just enough to survive and create the next generation of producers producing them with wealth and while it's fair i mean that is truth to tell um the way it is kind of now under this system that will really solidify and codify those tiers and eventually you'll basically have a tier two tier systems of the masters or the barons and the serfs you'll have the serf class uh, that serve them and their only purpose in life really is to keep those uh, with power in power and 
that is uh, what we're afraid of it will happen and it looks like we will um, we have our work cut out for us for if we don't wish it to happen we have to call attention to the problems with the system that they're trying to foist upon us and so there it is uh, Anne Rand over 65 years ago now uh, predicted this and we've continued on this course as she predicted she she had the date slightly off i think you know it was originally it, she thought that it would happen by 2016 while well, she was off by a few years and a little few of the details are missing but basically um i said you know go ahead read atlas shrug it's a good book it's a long book or watch the movies um kind of the same idea if you watch the movies um but educate yourself and and see it and watch it and i remember re-watching the movies just a few weeks ago and and thinking well the thinking that she has you know she has her characters who are these leaders that are cooking up these plans to take over power for themselves and build a uh, power for themselves um and get people to act outside their own best interest and so she's and a number of scenes in her book and in the movies they you know they're in this room you know they're gathered together and they're they're hashing out their plans for for each other and for the people that are working for them and for society and they 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 keep thinking and keep saying that everything is for the greater good when really it is just a series of power plays that enrich those at the top and so I'm thinking, well, those discussions, those uh, fictitious discussions that are held within the pages of the book or within the movies are must be exactly, I think it reflects exactly the kind of thinking and the mentality that people have when they go to Davos to attend the function at the World Economic Forum. Um, it's got to be the same exact mentality. I think once again, um, uh, Anne Rand was a visionary. She saw this coming. She saw this kind of behavior, and lo and behold, we are still there's still people doing the same kind of behavior with the same kind of tragic results. And so this is uh, some of the, one of the reasons why we read dystopic um, literature. And, of course, this being the dystopic journal, you know, have to talk about uh, Anne Rand and particularly Atlas Shrugged. And so I hope you this, you found this interesting. Um, and I hope this gives you something to think of. And there's so much more. I think we're going to do a couple more installments on this subject and on her book, particularly Atlas Shrugged. So look forward to that. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you for listening and watching. And now we'll continue on with the rest of the Liberty Relearn podcast. All right. Thanks. And so thank you again for listening to this episode of the Dystopic Journal. I uh, hope you've enjoyed and um, been enlightened about um, a little bit from what I've uh, talked to you about, what, what we've discussed 
and what we've covered so far in the dystopic journal. Um, something that I like to think about because it's it's kind of scary when you when you think about when you read or watched 1984 and then you see the same exact things play out before your very eyes and you read or watch Atlas Shrugged and you see uh, again those same exact themes play out before our very eyes or any number you know Brave New World is another one which maybe I'll cover later and Animal Farm is another one and we can see exactly how these people work and think and so it's no wonder that dystopic literature has become a thing and a lot of it is just so visionary these people like Orwell and uh, Rand, they knew what was happening and they're privy to the mindset of the people who were doing this, what we call now leftists, they would have called collectivists or socialists or communists back then. But they had a glimpse into the world of how these people think and operate. And lo and behold, the leftists in our society have continued on this road. And now we have a, a society that's very much indistinguishable from that you can see and you know, read about in 1984 and a lot of things that uh, happened in Ayn Rand's books. Um, you can, you can uh, see those happen in real time before our eyes, uh, particularly with the advent of COVID-19. And all of the authoritarian that that would accompanied that um, that occurrence, and we're still doing that. And now I was just rereading uh, some of the literature uh, from the World Economic Forum to get an idea of what they're talking about. And yeah, they need to this this idea of the Great Reset. They need that to continue on and one of the things you hear over and over again is that we have that they say and i'm almost quoting here you know we have a very small window of opportunity to get this done they're talking about the great reset this um move to what schwab calls uh the fourth industrial revolution and so he thinks that uh we move from uh, regular capitalism to what he calls stakeholder capitalism. Uh, but way it really works is, and it's good, I guess it was one of those things sounds good in theory, because after all, we're all stakeholders. Uh, if one, like, huge bank, like, you know, you had the TARP bailouts back in 2007-2008, you had those occurring. And we all suffered because of the the dumb things that uh, some of the banks did. But moreover, what the banks did because at or at the behest of the government. Government made them, oversimplifying here of course, but they made them take on bad loans that the banks knew better than to take on. But they had a lot of pressure to take on these loans and these loans of course... Uh, defaulted and their uh, housing, you know, you had the housing bubble collapse in on itself. And so that's what happened there back in 07 and 08. And we had uh, a lot of us 
paid the price for the mistakes of others. And so you, you have it again where, you know, you, you, it sounds good to be interested in the stakeholder and not just the shareholders. Um, but, but when you think about how it's actually put into practice, everything, uh, comes back to not just the, the shareholders because, you know, anybody who wants to complain about the rich getting richer and these super billionaires and so-and-so is not paying any taxes and so-and-so uh, is charging too much. You know, a lot of these corporations you can buy into, you can buy stock in these, in these companies and you can share in the results and the fruits of their labor. And if you don't, you know, kind of like they say, if you can't beat them, join them. And so you can buy stocks. I mean, no, I know not everybody has the ability to buy stocks, but almost everybody has a 401k in there and they're buying stocks anyhow. So, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a way that you can influence what the, as a shareholder, uh, depending on what kind of stock you have, what these uh, corporations do, how much CEO gets paid. Do you think the CEO gets paid too much? Well, you can uh, vote against the, the CEO's pay. That vote's probably going to fail because what happens is that the shareholders, they say, well, we're going to get this person. We think it's going to make us more money, add more value to our shares. And what shareholder or what stakeholder capitalism does is actually, uh, this is a negative part of it, is it diversifies the risk. And so now um, it's not just the shareholder that is, you know, when you're, when you're trying to serve everybody, and that's what basically stakeholder capitalism does and why it can never work is because it seeks to serve everybody. And those people who bought shares or bought shares through their 401k or whatever, who've earned the right to have say, well, their say is being diluted by people and other factors, uh, companies uh, searching after high ESG scores, for instance, being dictated by maybe the World Monetary Fund or um, members of the World Economic Forum, the basic uh, constituencies the oligarchs that comprise most of the World Economic Forum. You know, they all benefit, but when they're trying to benefit everybody, you benefit nobody. I don't know if that makes sense. But that's the problem. You're diluting the ability of the individual who owns maybe st uh, shares in this company. It dilutes their ability even then. I mean, they might have one ten thousandth of a, sh of a share of a company, but they have at least a little bit of say. And what stakeholder capitalism does is dilute even that small amount of say. And so the shareholders, the ones who bought in, put risk their own money for the right to have a say in the direction of the company and to share in its um, successes and failures also but hoping to share in the company's uh, successes and profits. Now you have other groups that are dictating 
to that company or that corporation what they can and cannot do. And so uh, students of history will remember this from, and this is something we've talked about before too, uh, with uh, economic fascism. You know, everybody thinks of fascism as being the jackbooted thugs going from door to door, kicking down doors and taking people and killing people, beating them up and terrorizing uh, uh, populations. And that indeed is part of it. But another major part of it, the part of it that really is more lasting and more pervasive in a society is the economic fascism. And what the economic fascism does or did is basically gave the state a say in everything that every corporation does. So it's like a the state having a chair at the you know being the chairman of the board of the board of directors of every major company in a country. And so that's what uh, economic fascism is. It's the micromanagement of the of corporations and economic activity by so-called experts in the state because everything is supposed to be for the benefit of the state and the problem is that of course you have people who have no financial interest in that corporation succeeding or failing now you're giving them a say and that that doesn't work out economically uh, history has shown it's not a good idea you know if you want to have the right to influence what a company does or corporation does if you want to earn the right to have that say then you have you can buy into to it you know you invest in that company or you start your own company and you do it that way you invest your own money and you put your own money on the line and then you can you should have you should be the one if you're investing your own money particularly for a small small businessman you should be the one who gets to call the shots you know you should not have uncle sam or whomever uh looking over your shoulder and, and say no do this no don't do that uh more green here uh less of something else there you know less fossil fuel there um it should be for the benefit because the way that healthy capitalism works at least is that you offer a service you can only enrich yourself by providing a goods and services of value to somebody else and of course you have the voluntary nature of that that transaction you have the voluntary nature of everything that's uh, going on and of the you know between the uh, person who's selling the goods and services and the person who's buying it and that if that person can't afford your goods and services then they're going to buy less of it and you're going to make less money so you have to come to an accommodation between the buyer and seller um, what the proper price should be and one thing that happened uh, recently um, is you know you have President Biden again meddling in with 
the uh, student loans. He wants to forgive, I think it's like $20,000 of student loans that people have. And he, you know, obviously he's trying to buy the votes of the people who are paying down their student loans. And he's trying to buy down the votes of the people, uh, the parents, who are probably the ones in many cases who are really paying down the loans, okay? And so he's trying to buy their votes, I would say, many people uh, have pointed out. And what that does is it disrupts the free market. Now, you have, with the cost of education, you have a a phenomenon going on where you have people who are in the market who have no right financially to be in that market, okay, because the goods, that is the education, is overpriced. So you have people who cannot normally afford this good, this education, at the price that it's being sold at. So you have the government stepping in and artificially raising that person's ability to uh, afford what's happening or, or afford the education. You artificially influence uh, the person's ability to um, establish a fair market uh, price. And so you have a price for goods, that's education, that's price at what should be more than what the market will bear. Well, now you have the government coming in and artificially raising the purchasing power of the individual, the person going to school or the parent of the person going to school. And so you have a disruption of the free market system that is resulting in spiraling, you know, the cost of education spiraling out of control. And so that's why you have a lot of people you see online being, have been fooled into thinking that's a good thing. And you see a lot of like the blogs and the pages coming from the left and the Democrats saying, oh, isn't this great? And, and, you know, they're fixing what, you know, is a broken system when really they're exacerbating the problem. What they're actually doing is they're condemning the next generation of kids to even higher, more out of control costs of education. Uh, because as I mentioned, they're, they should not be able to afford it, and but they're buying it anyhow. So the universities, the colleges are getting their money. And, but the kids are, the education is being subsidized in many cases through student loans. And so people, have made basically a bad business decision, bad financial decisions, taking on these student loans. They're using them for uh, for courses and for degrees that will be of no use to them in the real world. They won't be able to make up that money. Now, they've been sold a bill of goods, okay, for decades and decades. Um, you're basically, if you're a parent, you're being made to think that you're, you know, a piece of crap that you're uh, negligent if you don't provide your kid with a college education and we've been brainwashed to think that that the only thing the only way for uh, kids to 
do the next generation to do better than us than our generation is for them to go to college sometimes the case um, that was often the case uh, maybe years ago but it completely overlooks things like trade school and community college and and military service and uh, things of the like like that Um, so you're being told that you're a bad parent if you don't put your kid through college and your kid is being told the, the same thing through high school in particular they're being indoctrinated to think that the only way for them to get ahead is for them to go to a four-year college now four-year college is good for some people maybe many people but it's not good for everybody some people are better with working with their hands and so they be they'd be better off spending their time and money going through a trade school and they can build up a trade they they're doing something useful they're doing that something that society needs and in many cases if you're uh, working on trades you are well compensated particularly once you get out of the kind of the beginning or apprenticeship stages and you actually become a true professional in that trade uh, you're generally well well compensated and we actually have a, a shortage of train uh, tradesmen in this country in many fields you know you have HVAC and plumbing and electricians you know it's very hard it's hard to find in this country in particular because we don't really have a workable uh, apprenticeship sort of system that will keep the uh, trades flowing that will keep um, you know the pipelines of new people entering the trades going you don't have enough people because they've been basically lied to they've been told that the only way to make it is through college that's not all that's not always the case now of course the colleges they make out like a bandit either way you know big education I like to call them you know it's funny like um, particularly the left they like to use words like big pharma and big banks and big this and big that for things that they don't like well I want to start using the term big education because it's in that same spirit that they use it that um, you know it's big education it's it's a big conglomerate it's a syndicate basically of uh, colleges and universities that are soaking the the taxpayers and the parents and the kids of their money and it's all being propped up by the the government uh, paying for this and bailing out kids that have made poor financial decisions Um, I think the answer to student loans ultimately is first of all don't go into four-year college unless you're pretty certain that you're going to get a usable degree and you have to be honest with yourself whether or not you can obtain that degree and whether or not that that degree is going to be usable Uh, if you get some sort of liberal arts degree you know it may not be make you any money you'll may you'll have to be 
a master's degree, you know, like if you want to take psychology, for instance, you want to major in psychology, well, you pretty much have to be a master or a doctor of psychology in order to be a psychology professional. So you have to sink in a lot of money into your schooling just to reach the point where you can even start to pay back that money. And that's the, the true with many professions. Now there's other professions like the law, uh, medicine, and engineering, where you have to have a degree. That's the proper form for you to get that degree. But in some other cases, you can get by, you know, depending on what you want to do, on a two-year degree, or you or just being self-taught or having a certificate. Or having a uh, trade certificate, you know, uh, certification in some trade or another, you know, it's largely ignored and looked down upon, particularly in this country, uh, the trades, you know, particularly uh, uh, HVAC and plumbing, because, you know, they're not that glamorous, and the people who build houses and, and, you know, build the roads and things like that, you know, we, we kind of got to the point where we kind of looked down upon. And that has been the detriment, I think, to our site, particularly as Americans. I think they have a little bit different idea in Europe with regards to the trades that we do here. But, you know, it's the American colleges the prices of American universities are spiraling out of control. And so, I guess to make a long rant short, I would just sum it up by saying that um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so they're using the good intentions of the voters to basically finance these colleges, they're, they're financing these uh, deans and these college administrators. They, a lot of them have six-figure salaries. Uh, if you're a tenured professor, you know, you're pretty much there for life. It's pretty hard for you to lose your job. I mean, unless you're conservative, so unless you're like, um, you know, unless, unless you're, uh, get canceled for having conservative views or not following lockstep with the uh, left views, the liberal views, then, you know, you that's really the only way that you can be kicked out of academia now, you know, is to be like Jordan Peterson and be like a pariah to your school and not wanting to follow along with the edicts of your school or your government and not buying into the nonsense so you know you look at what they did with with jordan peterson how he was treated now he's it's worked out for him he's more i think famous now that he's been through the crucible that you know he's been um the victim of persecution uh, is really the only way to put it um, by his peers in the academia and so it's worked out for him um, hopefully it, worked, it works out for anybody hopefully there's anyone 
who in academia who wants to teach has a place to teach hopefully they can find a place to teach somewhere you know maybe uh, someplace like Hillsdale College that takes no money from the government someplace like that uh, will take them in so hopefully they'll find a good university a good home where they'll be allowed to be themselves and not have to follow lockstep politically and philosophically and ideologically with their peers in um, among the the staff of, in academia and so you have that and you have again these people who are basically you know kicking out the likes of Jordan Pearson from their midst uh, they're being richly rewarded. Again, they have six-figure six, six salaries in many cases. A lot of them are high, 70, 80, and 90,000 uh, salaries. Um, so they're getting paid. And they're making out like bandits because of the government propping up the buying power of the ordinary person. And again, so you never have this free market correction and once the price of an education got too high instead of the what should have happened was the universities would say well we're not uh, recruiting enough students to our university so we're gonna have to take measures so we're gonna lower the, the cost or freeze the cost of tuition until we have enough students matriculating at our college to cover the price of our, our college. But that's not what happened. The, you had like the federal government step in with Pell Grants and with these uh, student loans that gave the uh, people, the students, artificial buying power, which they would not have had themselves. And so the, you, you never reached the point where no one could go to school or the enrollments were declining because no one could afford the product that the education system was selling. And so when, if you never get to that point, then there's never that uh, price control, there's never that downward pressure on prices where you have just about anything else. I mean, if the price of a car gets too high, you know, the car company has to lower its price or freeze the price or do something, make a cheaper car for people to buy, or else they're just not going to buy it. Um, but now even that is being corrupted. Now you have these tax credits and uh, the government throwing out money for electric vehicles. And so if you want to buy an electric vehicle, the the you'll be subsidized in a lot of cases. And the the electric vehicle companies are being subsidized by the government too. And so you don't have, they're escaping the downward pressure, those free market forces that would adjust the price up or down, uh, commensurate it to what the market will bear. And so now the market will bear more. So if like, say if you give a uh, $7,000 business or a $7,000 tax break. Well, what do you think that the car company, car company is going to do? They're going to raise their, 
the price of their car $7,000. Okay, they're not going to lower it because you interfered with the free market forces that would serve over time to, with downward pressure on the price of the car. And so, you know, if no one can afford a car, no one's going to buy a car. Um, so you have to, and that's what these people in government don't grasp, is that they're killing their constituents with kindness every time they do things like uh, cancel and negate student loan debt. You know, I'm for, you know, if, if anybody is a victim of a predatory lending or they've been cheated or the they can prove that the university has misrepresented what they're going to do for them, then yeah, by all means, you know, uh, take action, and I'm all for you taking corrective action in that case, but, and for, and for uh, seeking obtaining relief in that case, but not if you made a, a poor financial decision because you were suckered by someone who convinced you that the only way forward is with a four-year degree from an expensive college. I mean, that's, and then you took some course that had no um, didn't translate into a job outside of academia, let's, let's say. You know, it's not a job that really society needs. You know, you're not an engineer, you're not a uh, doctor or a lawyer. You know, you're not providing a service at the end of the day once you've got your degree that society needs, and you're not going to be paid for it. And so that's the problem. You have government interference with the ability for people to pay for the education on their own um, and that's the problem and so it keeps the price spiraling up up and up because there's no downward pressure there's no um, corrective force from the market and so there you go um, that is a little bit of what's going on today and I hope also you enjoyed the dystopic journal for this week and look forward to another one uh, next week don't know what I'll talk about probably more Atlas Shrugged but hopefully you, you like this week and you'll let me know in comments or thumb, thumbs up thumbs down give me four stars um, do something let me know that you like the new installments or you like what I talk about or you think you found out something that you didn't know didn't understand about uh, student loans and the downside of paying off student loans um, so thank you for listening thank you for following libertyrelearn.com online and Liberty Relearn on Facebook thank you if you're following the LLR podcast on Getter or me JP Mac on Parlor. Maybe we'll expand, and Heads Up could be expanding um, into other areas pretty soon. Maybe you've already watched a few videos on Spotify. Uh, if you're on Spotify, you can watch the Dystopic Journal um, segments, and I did say watch, so you can look for that. And, but thank you. Until then, uh, until next time, stay healthy happy and free.